Um, it's in the text, believe him. If it's not, ignore. So uh, we are at this kind of hinge point in this from Joshua into Acts. We're moving, obviously we've been in Joshua for several weeks now, covering some of these big themes in the opening chapters, and we're moving into the book of Acts. And uh, there are some very interesting links between the books. We're going to talk about them in a moment, I hope. Uh, so, but I want to begin by just reminding you that you've probably heard something like this said. You've probably heard it said that the Old Testament is about violence while the New Testament is about love, right? Or you've heard the Old Testament is about law while the New Testament is about grace. You've heard that the Old Testament is about judgment while the New Testament is about mercy. And maybe you've heard something like, you know, this Yahweh guy in the Old Testament, he's about vengeance and genocide, the G word, and the law, and he likes stoning people, while the God of the New Testament, Jesus, is about forgiveness, the nation's grace, and love. So we begin our reading of the scriptures with this kind of strong dichotomy between the Old and New Testaments. And I would hope to this day make you a little bit uncomfortable with that separation. And I want to make you uncomfortable first by telling you that I think there is absolutely no division in the ethics of the Old and New Testaments. I think the same things are at play in both. The God of the conquest is as much about conquest in the New Testament as he was in the Old. The God of judgment is as much about judgment in the New as he was in the Old. And I want to tell you that I think these divisions are false. You know, we're not the first group to struggle with this division. There's this guy in the early church named Marcion, and he didn't really like the Jewishness of the church. And so he read his Bible, and he saw all these things he didn't like, and he blamed all the stuff he didn't like on Jehovah Yahweh. This is the bad God of the Jews. And he highlighted the stuff he liked in Jesus, and so he started to kind of edit and rewrite. He actually, he took the Gospels, and he removed all the Jewish stuff he didn't like, okay, and just kept the Jesus he did like. And um, we, uh, we continue to struggle, and beneath this is a discomfort. It's a discomfort as old as the church with the Jewish heritage of our faith. What do we do with the Jewishness of the Old Testament? What do we do with the Jewishness of Jesus? How do we read these two books as one book without separating them or weighting one of them unfavorably? And the raw truth is that when we allow these strong divisions to guide our reading of the text, we are flirting with some of these ancient heresies. We're very close to becoming what is actually called Marcionites. You don't want a heresy, you don't want your name to be applied to a belief. Like Riocianism, that's bad. If we get to that point, then I'm a heretic. It also reveals that we are, on the whole, terrible readers of the Old Testament because we come with these judgments ahead of time. So this says, what do we do with a book like Joshua? How do we read this? How do we appropriate this? How does this become a book for the church? Now, on my read, and as we've talked about this a little bit, there are four major themes that have come out of the Joshua text so far. There's the inheritance of the land. Not general inheritance, but a specific inheritance of a 90-mile strip of land from a city called Dan to a city called Beersheba on the Mediterranean coast. That land, that plot. Uh, there's calls for obedience to the law, like radical obedience. They get re-circumcised, re-re-circumcised, okay? <laughs> They're really serious about this stuff. Uh, there's a necessity for absolute purity. People get killed for not following the law. They get killed, they get stoned by the community for these things. And there is a narrative of conquest and warfare. They're supposed to wipe out the nations who are in front of them. They do a bad job of it, but that's what they're supposed to do. Now, we, these don't look a lot like New Testament values, do they? We really don't care about land, or we shouldn't be caring about land. We kind of forgive the impurities and... Obedience, we're kind of okay on. We don't really worry about the law, do we? 
and we don't kill our enemies. I hope we're not, just to be clear, we're not supposed to kill our enemies, we don't do this. So how do we make sense of a book like Joshua? Well, the good news is that I don't think we, I don't think we are responsible to solve this puzzle. I think someone has actually tried to solve this for us ahead of time, and that someone was Luke, who wrote for us both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So who is Luke? Well, we don't know a time, but we know this much. We know, first of all, that he was an author. That in itself is kind of special. Luke knew how to write. And we get the sense from reading um, not only Acts 1, but Luke 1, that he was going around the church, early church, interviewing people. Like, okay, so uh, you knew Mary. What was this like? And he's talking to people, and he's getting stories, and he's writing things down so that you can have confidence in what he's writing to believe. So we know that Luke is this patient guy. We find out that he is a physician. Now, I don't, I don't know quite what physician meant in the year 50 A.D. I'm not sure what that meant. But it probably meant, at the minimum, that he cared about people's bodies, that he was attentive to what was going on, uh, and that he had a degree of intelligence to do these things, we hope. Um, he also, most importantly for our purposes, oh, not most importantly, sorry, he was also, this is great, he was Paul's traveling companion. Let's look at Acts uh, 16, verses 10 and 11 for a second. Uh, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. It's a great moment. You shift from he did this, he did that, he did that, to we did this. And you realize that Luke, who's writing the text, is in the boat. And everything that follows, he's an eyewitness to this stuff. It's pretty cool. And so Luke saw these things happen. He was one of Paul's traveling companions. But as I was saying, most important for our purposes today, Luke was a Gentile. That is, he was not a Jew. Now, this is fascinating. Luke is remarkable in that he is the first Gentile who writes about the Jesus story and who wrestles firsthand with the Jewishness of the faith that we have inherited. So let's think about this more. What does it mean for Luke to be not a Jew? Well, he has no Jewish heritage. He didn't go to Jewish school as a kid. He doesn't have Jewish family. He doesn't speak Jew, uh, Hebrew. Uh, he, doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't do these things. He's not, he's not in the world. He's not in the lingo. He doesn't have an extensive education in the law and history. Uh, we understand that, the, that most of the apostles seem to have a rudimentary understanding of reading and writing, and it's because they went to synagogue as kids, and they were there every week listening to the Torah being read, and they've got it in their hearts, and they've memorized it, and when you prick them, they speak Torah in these things. Luke doesn't have that. I assume when he stubs his toe, he quotes Greek poets or something. I don't know. But he's not, he doesn't have this, this Jewishness in his blood in the same way. He doesn't have any sentimental feelings about the nation of Israel. The 90-mile strip of land between Dan and Beersheba means nothing to him. It's not relevant. If I found out on the news today that Chicago had been blown off the map, I would have deep sadness because that's near where I grew up. But most of you who are not from Chicago would be like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know Chicago existed. <laughs> right? You've never been there. It doesn't have any sentiment for you. Luke doesn't have that sentimental attraction to the land of Israel. And so what's remarkable is that I think this. Luke is reading the book of Joshua as a non-Jew, and he sees in Joshua's story connective tissue that links it to the Jesus story. Luke sees in Joshua's story of conquest and inheritance and obedience and purity direct links to what's happening in the church. And so when he tells the story of the church, he tells it as the conquest narrative of the people of God. That's what I think is going on. And so I want to bring to light a few of those links. In fact, I'm going to bring to light six of them. And here's the good news. If you phase out or you lose one, it's all right. We're going to put a chart up at the end. 
And you can say, oh, that's handy, but I won't put the trout up now because that's no fun because then I don't get to unveil it. All right, good. And don't, don't get too excited. It's a boring chart. All right. So let's talk about six features of Luke's theology for Joshua into Acts. Well, the opening of the book of Joshua is the death of Moses. This is a significant event for the Israelites. He's been their leader through 40 years in the wilderness. Remember, there's this story of him. He's holding a staff in the air, and they win battles. And he's the one who led them across the Red Sea, and he strikes the rock, and water comes out. He's been a mighty sign prophet who has led Israel all these years, and he dies before they get to inherit the promised land. So there's a gap in leadership. The first thing happens in Joshua is that leadership, two things happen. Leadership passes from Moses to Joshua. There's a clear transition from one to the other. And then they commit to dedicating themselves to the teachings of Moses. This is the beginning of Joshua. We're going to do what the law says. We're going to get it right where our ancestors got it wrong. Now, in the background of this transition is actually a promise in the book of Deuteronomy, which features largely in Joshua, by the way, um, a promise in the book of Deuteronomy of a prophet to follow who is greater than Moses. Let's look at Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19 briefly. Uh, Moses, supposedly writing this, says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desire to the Lord your God, at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. I think that's it. All right, so after Moses, there's a promise, a prophet to come, greater than Moses, doing bigger things than Moses. It becomes uh, formative in kind of the Messiah uh, narrative of the New Testament. Well, this is the beginning of Joshua. What's the first thing that happens in the book of Acts? Jesus ascends into heaven. Suddenly, our leader is absent and gone. He's done more signs than Moses. He's done greater signs. He's been bigger than Moses, and now he's gone. But he's not gone in the same way as Moses because he leaves his presence and his spirit. And now what do the apostles do? Well, there's clearly the discussions of leadership. Uh, who's in charge? Peter stands up among the brethren, it says, and they commit themselves to following the apostles' teaching in much the same way that the disciples, excuse me, the Israelites committed to following the Deuteronomistic law. We're going to do what the law says. The apostles say we're going to commit to the teachings of Jesus. This is a great passage. Acts 2.42 looks a lot like Joshua now. Uh, they, devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The, the attitude of the church is we're going to commit to the teachings that have been left to us. So uh, what do I think is the significance, significance of, for Luke of the death of Moses and the ascension of Jesus? Uh, the leadership of the church is both like and unlike the leadership of Israel in the Old Testament. Moses leaves books, Jesus leaves teachings. Moses leaves but does not return, Jesus leaves but leaves with power. In Jesus we have found the promised prophet who is greater than Moses. And this is the opening setup for the book of Acts. So we go on. In the book of Joshua, Israel rededicates themselves as 12 tribes. And when they cross the Jordan River, they take 12 stones out of the river and set up this Ebenezer, this stone of remembrance um, near these things, so they can have this, this cairn that will remind them of God's faithfulness at that time. Now, in the background, there's some history. Um, we must remember that Israel had left Palestine nearly 500 years before with the promise of inheriting the land they'd left. And so God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to give you this land. And he doesn't give it in his lifetime, and the promise passes to Isaac, his son, and the promise passes to Jacob, his son, and the promise passes to 
Jacob's 12 sons, and then they go down to Egypt where they're enslaved and they're kept there for a long time. And this moment when they're crossing the Jordan is the final reward of their very, very long wait for this land. God promised it to them. They've been in wait for it, and they're waiting to inherit Now, 40 years before they crossed the Jordan in the book of Joshua, the Israelites had arrived at the land and sent out 12 spies. I don't know if you remember the spy story, uh, but they pick a leader from each of the tribes of Israel, they send the 12 in, and they go investigate the land. And they come back and they give a report, and they're like, man, the grapes are amazing, and the, the land looks fantastic, but the inhabitants are big people, and I think we're gonna lose. So two of the 12 were faithful, Joshua, Caleb, Joshua who's leading, and then Caleb, his buddy. Those two are faithful, and the other ten are, uh, they, they spoil, they poison the wells for Israel. And now Israel quails, and they're afraid, and the reason they spend 40 years in the wilderness is because they don't trust God in that moment. So now we come back, and they bring up 12 stones again. And the number 12 is always significant, so, in these moments. So what do we see in the opening of the book of Acts after Jesus ascends? Well, they have a conversation. We need to do something about Judas's place. We need a 12th. We need someone here who will fill that role. Now, there's a couple reasons why they need a 12th. I think the biggest reason is because they sense that there's a continuity between what we are doing as 12 apostles and what the 12 tribes were doing. That we have to have 12 because there's these links between them and because the tribes are going to inherit. And now we, in the footsteps of Joshua, are going to inherit. And we have to do it as a 12. And this goes a little further because when you look at why, the criteria for why they choose this person, they say, well, they have to be with us from the baptism of John, and they have to be through all the teaching, and they have to do these things. Sometimes we think that Jesus was hung around with 12 people, right? That was it. But we read in Luke that, that when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, he says, and there were 72 others who went out as well. There's a much larger group of people following Jesus. We just see the, the kind of inner circle, right? And even with the inner circle, he's just got Peter, James, and John who are his closest mates within that. So we've got this, this group. He's got 72 others. So this makes us rethink this two by two. You guys have heard the story where the disciples go out two by two. They're not supposed to bring any food. They're not supposed to bring extra clothing. Um, and they're supposed to go and just live by faith. And suddenly I begin to think that maybe this looks a bit like a, a reconnaissance mission where they're investigating the land before they conquer it later. They look a lot like spies, don't they? And when they choose the replacement, what's his qualification? He was one of the reconnaissance people. He's done the work. He knows what it looks like. And so this is what I think is going on between um, the, the, the choosing of 12, the 12 stones and the 12 apostles. For Luke, he's saying that the apostles are leading the church into a new inheritance. And actually, Jesus gives us the scope of this new inheritance in Acts 1.8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay. There's this scope of the book of Acts expanding as things go out. And if you follow the Acts narrative, they start in Jerusalem, and then they go to Judea, and then they go to Samaria, and in Samaria they meet an Ethiopian, and the Ethiopians are sometimes described as the ends of the earth. And then things just blow out. It's pretty cool. Uh, so what Jesus says, they apparently do. That's good news. Okay, so next thing that happens. In Joshua, uh, the Lord shows that he intends to guide the Israelite army personally. And he does this by showing up as the angel of the Lord's army shows up. It's that great moment Jim, Jim talked about a few weeks ago. The angel shows up, and they're like, great power. Are you for us or against us? The angel says, neither. <laughs> you think, what a letdown. <laughs> and he essentially says, no, I'm not on your side. I'm on God's side. 
and uh, I'm with you for the moment. And that's, that's kind of like, okay, thanks, angel of the Lord. And then a few chapters later, they go to Ai and they lose to show that they, they're, they can't make the Lord serve them. Uh, they have to be with the Lord for what they do. So the angel of the Lord's army shows that the, his, he's going to be in control. His power is going to do things. Remember, uh, we didn't get to this battle in Joshua. There's a battle where the sun stands in the sky. There's supernatural power at work in how God is going to bring the victory about in the land. Well, it seems pretty clear that in the book of Acts, someone else comes and he fights for us, but we can't make him serve us. And that's the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost. He looks a lot like the angel of the Lord's armies. He is the presence and power of the Lord. But we can't manipulate the Spirit. We can't make the Spirit do things we want Him to do. We can't say, we're going to conquer St. Andrews. If the Spirit says no, <laughs> it ain't going to work. doesn't matter how hard you try. You're going to lose that fight. In the same way that the angel of the Lord's armies is with, but not really for. The Spirit is with us, but in some ways not for us in that way. There's this curious relationship between our wills and His will. And so maybe the best way to say it is that the Spirit isn't our servant, but we are servants of the Spirit's mission. So why does Luke pair these things between the angel of the Lord and the Spirit? I think he's trying to show us that God is in charge of the mission. His sovereign Spirit calls the shots, and we've got to be obedient. Uh, let me take a step back. I think I... It's one of these things I thought I'd written down, but maybe I didn't. And maybe it's in my notes, and I'll come across it in a minute. But when you see the apostles moving forward in the, gospel of, in, in, the, in the book of Acts, they rely on the Spirit for their guidance and for things they do. They say phrases like, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Not, it seemed good to us, and so we asked the Spirit's permission. Uh, they're in, in service to the Spirit, much like Israel had to be in service to the Spirit as well. Okay, fourth, comp, fourth parallel. There's six of them. Uh, in Joshua, Israel commits to taking seriously the law of Moses. They are going to commit to living the dictates of the law. They're even, like I said, recircumcised at the Jordan River, which is don't think much about that. Um, the dictates of the law also indicate, when you read through the Deuteronomic law, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that no Israelite should be left behind. If the law is fully implemented in the land, no one goes hungry. No one is in need. Um, everyone has access to, to food and property and a way forward, and that's essentially when they say that Torah is people-keeping. Uh, sorry, I'm going to jump around, but remember the opening, the opening kind of sin after the garden is that Cain kills Abel, and God says, what have you done? And Cain said, what am I? Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer looming in the background was, you were. You should have been. And one of the arguments we can make about the Torah, the law, is that it's instructions for brother-keeping. You should have been keeping your brother. And when you keep your brother, people aren't starving and people aren't homeless, and people aren't in need in the community of God. And so Israel's going to do this. They're going to take it seriously, and this is, how they, this is what they commit to doing. Also, it's worth saying that obeying, can God, obeying God can mean some odd behavior, such as marching seven times around a city and blowing trumpets. That's a little weird. But our radical obedience to the law, as our radical obedience to the Spirit's voice, can bring great results of God's power. He's going to do things when we show ourselves willing to be used by him, even if it means looking like fools sometimes. That'll be okay, because he's going to look awesome, and I'd rather he look awesome than me look awesome, right? That's what we want. So what do we see in the Acts community but a group who are sharing their possessions in common, living so that none goes without? 
In fact, and one of my friends who's an Old Testament scholar uh, has told me this, he says, you can make a serious argument that what's happening in Acts 2 and 4 with the new communities who live with their stuff in common, all they're doing is living the law. For the first time, they're living the dictates of what the law commanded all along, and none have needs because of it. And so that uh, recontextualizes. It's not this new thing. It's not like, wow, the Spirit came and suddenly they did it. It's like, no, this is what was meant all along. They're keeping people instead of keeping the law. It's a little different. Now, additionally, and this, maybe this is a stretch. You'll have to tell me. You have to think about this. When they meet together and none of them have needs and they pray, it tells us in Acts 4 that the room where they were meeting was shaken. And for the first time thinking about this, I wondered, did walls fall down when they obeyed God's word? And where were the walls that fell? And I kind of want to think when we obey like that, the walls fall everywhere. Israel obeys in one way and Jericho's walls fall. If we obey God radically, things are going to blow out. Nothing can stand in our way. So anyway, you can think about that and tell me what you think later. So why does Luke pair these two? Well, Luke says that the new community of God's people are doing what God's community is called to do all along so that none have need in the people of God. And that when we obey radically, God does mighty deeds in the world. All right, the fifth link between Joshua and Acts is uh, the link between Achan and Ananias and Sapphira. If you've read through Acts, then you've come to Acts chapter 5, and you've read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and you've gotten nervous, because this looks suspiciously like an Old Testament moment, and it is. (laughs) It is. Ananias and Sapphira, everyone's giving their goods, they're selling fields. The opening of the passage says that uh, Barnabas, who means son of encouragement, he shows up, he sells a field, and he gives the money to the church. Now, it's not because he wants praise. It's because he sees, wow, Jim has a need, and I've got a field. I don't need the field. Jim needs to be fed. Amen. Amen. Yes, you do. (laughs) You're doing okay on that, mate. Yeah, okay. (laughs) And this group, Ananias and Sapphira, this husband and wife, they also sell a field, but they withhold some of the money. Now, we don't know quite the nature of their sin. Is it because they lied? Uh, Is it because they fibbed? Is it because they thought they deserved the money? We we, We can't quite diagnose. They don't tell us what happened. But what we do find out is that when they show up with the money, they get called out for lying to the Holy Spirit. This is a bad thing. And it's proved a bad thing because they each of them die for having lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, this looks suspiciously like Achan, whom Jim preached about. It was last week, wasn't it? Achan goes into Jericho. He's got strict instructions on what to do. Don't take any of the, don't take any of the articles for yourself. But he does. He keeps some of it. Uh, the, the, the Israelites move on. They get defeated at Ai because Achan hasn't obeyed. And now Achan, uh, they, everybody gets together, stones him, and then there's a pile of stones where he used to be. That's ugh, grim stuff. So there's a couple of things. This is, this is the clearest parallel between Joshua and Acts. This was actually for me about, about 12 or 15 years ago. This is the first thing that triggered for me to say, actually, there's stuff going on here. Um, so why, why does Luke bring these two stories together in this way? Well, one, um, we can't lie to the Holy Spirit. And he wants us to have some sense of the cost of being pure. And if you think you can lie to the Holy Spirit, you've got trouble on the horizon. You can't. He knows what's going on. Two, there's a critical difference between the Old and New Testaments. In the Old Testament, the entire nation is stopped because of Achan's one sin. In the New Testament, just the sinners are stopped because the mission's going forward no matter what now. And God's work is going to happen in this place. But third, and I think uh, this ties back to the presence of the angel of the Lord's armies, 
Um, we don't get to control how God works. We're not in control. We have to obey. We have to strive for purity and obedience. But we don't get to make the Spirit um, bless the things we want to do. We don't get to apply Him as a sanction to the private sins that we want, whether it's wealth or property or things we want to do with our bodies or how we speak or how we treat other people. And that's dangerous ground. And we have to have the warning of how dangerous that ground is, just like Israel had to have that warning. Lastly, last connection that I'm going to talk about this morning between Joshua and Acts is the mission to the nations. In uh, Joshua chapter 2, it's a lovely passage where the Israelites send a couple more spies into the land to check it out, and they go to Jericho, and they end up at the house of a prostitute named Rahab. I always think there's subtext there. Like, you've been 40 years in the wilderness, and here's the first place you ended up, the house of a prostitute. <laughs> oh, no. And Rahab, Rahab's like, hey, I heard you were coming, and we're all terrified of you. And so she ends up looking a little more righteous than they do, which is great, because uh, it turns the tables. And then she bargains for them. She bargains for her and her family's life, and they agree. Uh, and so she saves them, and then later on they save her. And the great news is, is that Rahab gets folded into the nation of Israel. She becomes the grandmother of King David, and Matthew makes an explicit point of mentioning uh, when he mentions, um, Matthew mentions four women in the genealogy of Jesus, and all four of them have questionable sexual history. It's very explicit that he puts them there to say, and this woman is in Jesus' genealogy. So, she's, she's great. She's awesome. I like Rahab a lot. Now, what happens in Acts is that Peter meets this guy named Cornelius. And Jews, going into the houses of non-Jews, is always sketchy business. And so Peter's sitting here. It says one day in Acts 10 that he's hungry. And while he's hungry, he has this vision. So the vision is of a sheet lowering down. It's got all sorts of animals in it. And uh, it's got clean and unclean animals. And Peter hears a voice that says, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. I don't break the law. I don't do these things. And the vision happens three times, and then Cornelius knocks on the door, and the pieces fall into place for Peter. Oh, I'm not supposed to consider the nations unclean because God's mission has been blown out. And so Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius comes to faith, and he becomes part of the kingdom people. And there's a sudden expansion and a wrapping in of the nations into the church, and this is the major shift in the book of Acts from the Jewish community to the non-Jewish community, which is why we have Luke, and why we have Luke writing Acts, who's telling us how do we move forward from these things. And this tells me, the stories of Rahab and Cornelius, that God's mission is and always has been a global mission. It's global. There are probably more parallels, but I'm going to stop there today. Let's put my chart up, my unexciting chart. No, that's not my chart. That's good. That's good. I'm sorry. I gave it to him in the last minute before we started, so it's my fault that we're... That's tiny, bigger, and big. It didn't get any bigger. All right. Um, if you want some of the text, let's just leave this up for a minute. Uh, we've got Joshua and Acts. We have the death of Moses, Joshua 1, the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1, the rededication of Israel in Joshua 3 and 4, the replacing of Judas, which matches us in Acts 1, the angel of the Lord's armies in Joshua 5, the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, um, the implementing the law, Joshua 1, 3, and 4, the Acts community, Acts 2 and 4, 
Uh, the warning of Achan, especially about purity, Joshua 7, and the warning of Ananias and Sapphira, also about purity, Acts 5, and then the incorporation of the nations in Joshua 2 and the mission to the nations in Acts 10. Uh, in terms of order, I've kept Acts's order uh, in terms of progression of chapters, and, and uh, Luke just seems to be pulling from Joshua. In, he's, he's, not, he's not forced the Acts narrative to match the Joshua narrative, but he seems to be pulling themes uh, from these things quite strongly. Okay, so I think we can make the case that Luke sees uh, strong connected tissues between Joshua and Acts. He sees a kind of narrative continuity between these stories, and he is framing the story of the early church as a kind of conquest narrative. The church is invading the land after our leader has ascended, and now we are going, starting with 12 proto-spies, we're going to invade and take over, and it's going to advance God's global conquest, not of the 90-mile strip of land between Dan and Beersheba, but of the entire world. Um, the end of the book of Joshua is the division of the land, and so they go through and they say, and they go here, and they, 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 they boundary out all the spaces. And I don't know if this is worth making, but I wonder if there's um, similarities between that and then um, Paul's missionary journeys, doing boundaries of where this church is going to go in the world. It's possible that Luke has at least notionally this stuff in mind. All right, so what do we make of all this stuff? Well, as I opened with, you've heard it said the Old Testament is about violence, well, the New Testament is about love, but I say that the whole story is one of conquest. God's objective is and always has been the world. It's true that in the Old Testament, he's concerned with the nation, the land, the property of Israel, but in the New Testament, his true goal and scope has been fully revealed. And there are changes. In the kingdom of God, our weapons are not military, um, but, but mercy. We fight with mercy, which is ironic. Our power is not in our numbers, but in the presence of the Spirit in our midst. That's not really news. That's what was true in the Old Testament, too. God makes that clear abundantly. It's His Spirit and His power, but we, we have access in a fresh way to that power. Our weapons are not for the moment swords, but praise and worship. Um, it's our praises where we attack the spiritual powers in advance. And our enemies have been, in some ways, they're no longer external, but our, our worst enemies are within the things that we have to fight inside ourselves. I don't think God has changed his mind in any way, but he has revealed the extent of his tactics. His goal is and always has been the same. It's the subjugation of human hearts. That's what he wants. Joshua, we've seen the past weeks, is about conquest and about purity, about obedience and about inheritance. And if Luke is to be believed, then so also is the book of Acts. It's an ongoing conquest of the lost. It is a radical demand for purity. It is a new call to obedience, and it is the promise of a life-giving and eternal inheritance, the inheritance of God's people together. So as I thought about this and I thought about how we're moving into prayer, I think the best question I can ask is, do you want to be part of it? God's on the move. He's doing stuff. His spirit is present. His spirit is doing stuff. And he's driving the bus. Like, we get on the bus, the spirit drives. We don't get to call the shots. We don't get to see where we go. But we get to be led, and we get to be filled, and we get to live in a community of people who will love and call us to be greater than we are. Are you ready to be part of the spirit's work in the world? He wants to heal. 
He wants to speak. He wants to guide. He wants to perform signs and wonders. And sometimes I think he's just waiting for our obedience, however radical it might be, however silly it might make us look. He's waiting for us to step up so he can open doors and blow out the walls. Are you ready to be commissioned as a sacred spy? (laughs) Sent out to scout your inheritance, to seek the people who are lost, who are just waiting. Who are the Corneliuses around the corner? Who are the Rahabs just waiting to be asked so they can show that they're even more righteous than us and have been waiting to be called into the people of God? I think there's adventure that Luke wants us to hear about in the book of Acts. And I hope as we go on in the coming weeks, the sense of adventure, the sense of call, the sense of a burden for what God is doing will grow in us. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to pray. And you're going to have a chance to come forward and be prayed for by members of the home groups. Now, as Jim said just before I stood up, um, some of you, what was the word, repointing? Some of you probably need repointing. And so if you heard that word and that was for you, come be prayed for to be repointed. And someone will rub your back where the hole is and fill, fill up the cement hole. Yeah, optional. Okay, optional back rubs. Um, <laughs> yeah, Jim says no. But I want to ask you, if you want to be part of this in a way that maybe you haven't been part of it before, come to be prayed for to be commissioned for the work. Or come be prayed for to step into it for the very first time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you died and you rose again, and you ascended into heaven to show us, to show us your power, to pour out your spirit upon us, to lead us into new life. I pray for your transforming hand to be at work among this kingdom vineyard today. Um, I pray, Lord Jesus, that whether or not I pray, Lord, for the people who are going to come forward to receive prayer to be commissioned, that you bless them mightily. But I, I pray for those people who won't come forward for whatever reason, and they need, they need to be touched, and they need to be moved by your Spirit, too. And would you niggle in them with a holy discomfort that they can't sit still for long because you're hunting. So call and guide us, mighty Jesus. Move us by your power. Don't just bless us. Bless all the churches in this town with your spirit. Pour yourself out on all your followers in this place, Lord Jesus.